0: Will you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word today's scripture is from Ezekiel chapter 47 verse 6 through 12 and he said to me son of man have you seen this then he led me back to the bank of the river as I went back I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other and then he said to me this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Araba and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything that live where the river goes, fishermen will stand beside the sea from a mangeti to an eneglium, en- It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. But they will bear the fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Vita. God, thank you, Huck, for the powerful scripture reading. Good morning, everybody. How y'all doing? Good. The coffee kicking in or what? we 10 minutes away from that. Let's go ahead and get some second rounds in. Uh, just so we can overflow with the Lord's caffeine this morning and uh, get into his word, uh, extra hardcore. Uh, I'm, a, I'm like a, you know what, I'm a three-cup guy, but I'm gonna stop talking about coffee now because I feel my heart racing. Uh, welcome, my name is Pastor Alberto. I, I serve here as the lead pastor of this church, and it's an honor and privilege to be with you guys uh, this morning. Uh, if this is your first time joining us at this part in our service, we look at the word of God. And when we look at the Word of God, we're not just simply here to uh, receive a teaching and then move on uh, with our day. Uh, We're not here to learn a few things and then remember them at some other point in our life. We're here to be transformed. Uh, We're here to look at the Word and then let the Word look at us. And as we get this Word inside of us, it begins to do something supernatural in our hearts that we can't really explain, and the Scripture calls it transformation. Uh, that we are becoming more and more uh, like Christ and becoming all that God has called us to be. And so what we've been doing uh, this past couple of weeks, last week, we kind of kicked off this irregular sermon series. And I said, anytime you see that video play, we're just kind of taking a moment to sort of unpack uh, our, our mission as a church. More specifically, who we are as a church and, and what God is calling us to be. And if you saw that scripture from Isaiah forty-three nineteen, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert." That verse sort of frames the vision for what we long for God to do in our personal lives and in our community, in our family, in the places that we occupy, that we would experience this great transformation through the transforming power of the gospel and experience new life springing forth, not just in our spiritual life, but every single area of our life, in in our finances, in our homes, in our parenting, in our work, in every single place that we would occupy that God's grace would come over it and we would experience his power and presence in every area and aspect of life. And so we talk a lot about transformation. I'm passionate about transformation. My life has been transformed by the gospel and it is being transformed by the gospel. My wife watching is saying yes and amen. Uh, the Lord is still transforming me and, uh, and I will continue to be transformed until we enter into glory together. Uh, but what we've been going to talk about this morning is this piece in our mission statement uh, regarding mission. So last week we talked about worship, and we said worship, a life of worship or a lifestyle of worship is living a God-centered life. Centering our lives around the person and presence of God and letting uh, God's centrality reorient everything we do. Influence the way we think about our personal decisions, our finances, our relationships, our work decisions. uh, Putting God at the center and then organizing our life around that. Versus deciding, hey, this is what I want to do, or this is the decisions that I'm going to make. This is what I want, where I want to work. These are the career moves that I want to uh, embark on. This is how I want to spend my money. And then tacking God at the end of it and asking him to bless it. That's not a God-centered life. A God-centered life is saying, Jesus, you're at the center and yielding our lives to him and letting him direct and lead us. Uh, This morning, we're going to talk about spirit-empowered mission. Now mission is a fun word because when we think about Christian mission, the the first place our mind goes to often is having uh, this idea of really high commitment to evangelism. Yes, mission, sharing the gospel every single day, everywhere we go, or or this idea of foreign mission trips, going overseas to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, or maybe some sort of local effort to meet some sort of need. When we think about the word mission or Christian missions, if you're honest, that's sometimes the first place our mind goes to. Now here's the issue with that. When our concept of mission is reduced down to a few simple activities, what will happen is that we will view mission as something to casually participate in when there's enough margin in life. And if you're honest, there's rarely ever any margin left over. Uh, And so mission is then viewed as a lifestyle that's relegated to a select few. Pastor Peter, that's a mission guy right there. He just breeds evangelism. He'll lead a tree to the Lord. That's not my thing. Or that Christian right there, he, that, that man, he's really good at missions. I'll, I'll, I'll support and pray for him. But, but for me, I don't know if God's calling me to that. And so we reduce mission to just being a synonym for really high commitment to evangelism and foreign missions. But hear me, church. God's vision for mission is much deeper than this, and it is much more profound. You see, the mission of God is reuniting heaven and earth. The mission of God is reuniting heaven and earth. And what does this look like? It looks like the lost coming home. It looks like the hurting healed. It looks like the enslaved and the addicted and those in bondage being rescued and set free. It looks like those who are rescued and those who are healed become powerful healers and rescuers through God's love and by God's spirit. It looks like homes being beacons of hope, personal lives filled with peace that surpasses understanding. It looks like children being captivated by the love of God because their parents are overflowing with God's love. It looks like cities and communities living in harmony and unity with no injustices, no racism, no partiality, no corruption. The mission of God is reuniting heaven and earth. It looks like creation and the world being restored back to its former glory. The mission of God is reuniting heaven and earth. And with that in mind, we are going to look at a few scenes. The first one is the garden, the second is the river, and third is the sea. To unpack this idea, the mission of God is reuniting heaven and earth. We're going to visit three places if you're taking notes. The garden, the river, and the sea. Join me in prayer. Father, we come in Jesus' name and Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for being uh, the God uh, of all of creation. Lord, thank you for uh, allowing us to gather in this sacred moment to worship you and receive from you. I pray that as we look at your word, uh, that you would open up our hearts to receive the word. Uh, Lord, where it seems like there's such little margin, maybe not even enough margin to be here this morning, I pray that you would carve open a space in our hearts to receive this seed and that you would allow it to land on good soil and yield a great harvest. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. The mission of God is reuniting heaven and earth. Let's look at our first scene, the garden. Genesis chapter 2, verse seven through 17, this is what it says. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for fruit. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden." And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the, the Pishon. It, it is the one that, that flowed around the whole land of Havilet, and there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. The second of the river is uh, Gahon, It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, You are surely, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. So in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, where we spend a lot of time because we have to understand where we came from and what went wrong in order to understand how we can put this word into practice, what we see happening is God's creative power at work in designing and creating a world for humans to thrive in. God created and ordered a world for humans to thrive in. In the beginning, God brings form to a formless world. God brings fullness to an empty world. God creates order uh, in a disordered world. We see that he brings light to a dark world. And lastly, he creates life in a lifeless world. Now, a world that was once formless and empty and dark is now filled with life. And God specifically creates a man and a woman to enjoy life with him. Humans were created to be residents of this world, but but not alone. Rather, they would live in union with God's presence dwelling among them. And, And then God places Adam and Eve in a garden and he commands them to be fruitful and to multiply. You see, the garden was never the destination. The garden was simply the starting point. God puts them in this uh, space so that heaven would overlap with earth. And as they began to advance the boundaries of the garden, uh, heaven would eventually invade earth and there would be God's presence dwelling among them all over the world as we know it. And God places them in a garden and he commands them to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, the authority that God has in creation, he is bestowing to Adam and Eve and commissioning them to continue the work of creating a world for humanity to thrive in and enjoy the splendor of God. And there's something about a garden that's significant here. I mean, why a garden? Why not a town? Uh, Why uh, not some sort of community that's already established? Why a garden? Uh, There's many reasons that we could deduce here, but a few of them that are interesting to notice is that a garden carries this idea of potential. A garden has great potential to yield a beautiful life-giving harvest that you are so proud of, or it can just be a terrible, bad backyard investment that you don't share show guests when they come over to visit a garden there's something about it that is slow yet beautiful that is amazing and rewarding yet difficult to tend to and what's interesting to notice is that about a garden is that the boundaries of a really good garden extend beyond the physical boundaries of where the garden is placed What I mean by that is when your garden produces really good fruit and really good vegetables, it doesn't stay there. It ends up on the table or it ends up on the table of somebody else. I have friends who have backyard gardens and every time I go visit them, they're like, dude, you've got to take these tomatoes. And in my mind, I'm like, I hate tomatoes, (laughs) but you're so proud of these tomatoes. And what's fascinating is that they look like a tomato, Uh, And it's so, oh, take these peppers, and these peppers are so good. Or I'm growing the cilantro, and and take it with you. And so a good garden doesn't just stay planted. It goes somewhere. It ends up somewhere. It produces this sort of splendor and joy that's supposed to be shared communally. And there's this idea that the Garden of Eden wasn't simply just remain there for two isolated individuals. Rather, the glory of Eden, the splendor of Eden was supposed to be extended all over the earth so that all of the world could taste and see that God is good. The way you taste and see that this garden is good through the harvest it yields. There are many reasons why God placed Adam and Eve in a garden, but I think the few that are worth mentioning is is that reminder that when we think about advancing God's kingdom, or when we think about the the work of reuniting heaven and earth, hear me, it is slow, but it is beautiful. It is difficult, but it's rewarding. And doing so in a way that our lives produce this fruit of others being... of others being able to see in us, wow, God is truly good. And this was the world that God set up for Adam and Eve to live in, to co-labor, to partner with him in, and and then sin enters the picture. Sin comes and disrupts the good, perfect world that God had set up for them, and now instead of being exposed to God's presence every day dwelling among them, they're exposed to this reality of suffering, of pain, of being disconnected with God feeling the effects of sin that if we're frankly honest, we've become extremely numb to. Where in the beginning, there was no concept of sickness, pain, or death. Uh, There was a world free from trust issues, heartbreak, and disappointment. Now we're swimming in it and it's become the norm. And and nothing was supposed to get in the way of experiencing life with God and having 24 seven access and connection to his presence. And now we live lives that say, God, are you even there? We sit in our room and some of us are on the edge of our seats craving an experience with God and others are just waiting for this moment to pass by because you doubt any of this is real. In the beginning, God's presence dwelling among his people experiencing union and joy and tasting and seeing that he's really good. And so when the scriptures describe a world like this, a way of living with God that is life-giving and overflowing with an experience of love that leaves no pain for suffering, that leaves no room for pain and suffering, if we're honest with ourselves, we believe that God created something like this in the beginning, but we don't believe that God is recreating this world right now in our day and age. We believe that God created a world that was good and where humans enjoyed access to his presence, but we really don't believe that's attainable for us today. And what ends up happening is that instead of joining God in his mission to reunite heaven and earth, we just wait passively to jump in when we feel like it hoping for at least one day in the week, like heaven is on earth, and then we start maybe remotely thinking about kingdom work in every part of our life. And the issue with that kind of thinking and that kind of living is that the forces of sin and darkness and the work of the enemy is not taking a day off. The enemy, sin, death is is not taking a day off from gripping your life with shame and doubt. It's not taking a life from reinforcing lies and making you believe that they're true. It's not taking a day off from creating relational breaches of trust, not taking a day off from drowning people in despair and hopelessness and addiction and fear. And if we only wait to bring heaven to earth when my life feels like heaven on earth, then we buy into the false lie and the false mindset that says, God is only working when I am working. God is only working when I am working. And hear me, church. What is so good about God and his kingdom is that even when circumstances are not ideal and even when things aren't playing, uh, playing out the way you thought it would, even on those days when it doesn't feel like heaven is invading earth, it actually feels like hell is spilling over into every area of your life. Even in those moments, God is inviting you to join in his mission that he's already doing of pushing back the forces of darkness and uniting heaven on earth despite what circumstances or feelings may look like. And the reason this matters is because this is the place where we find our friend Ezekiel. His circumstances were not ideal. And the place where he finds himself does not feel like heaven on earth, but he gets a vision for what life can look like when God's presence intersects with the most brutal parts of reality. And this brings us to our second scene, the river. Ezekiel, a prophet and priest, was born during a time of spiritual revival. Uh, His parents, uh, he was born as a baby when uh, King Josiah had rediscovered the book of the law and was bringing great reform to the land. And so as an infant, his parents would have experienced the tearing down of idols, worship being reinstituted in the temple, great spiritual revival, and he would have grown up in this with high hopes and expectations that maybe God's kingdom is coming to rule and reign on earth forever. But through a series of unfortunate events, Israel commits themselves to uh, once again entering into a life of idol worship and God through his great sovereign hand brings judgment through a neighboring nation, Babylon that's rising to power. And now Ezekiel who once experienced prosperity and peace and tasted what could possibly be the fruit of God's presence dwelling on earth is now being carted off to a foreign land as an exile and slave. And there's this sense of hopelessness and despair and dread because he's shackled and chained and surely God cannot be moving in, in this or through this or else why would I be here? And the children of Israel are living as exiles in, in a foreign land oppressed by the Babylonians and, and though their circumstances are different, we still live in the same broken world. And here's what's so amazing. In the midst of a heartache, in the midst of pain, In the midst of suffering, hunger, and hopelessness, the temple that was once built for God, Solomon's temple has been completely destroyed. Their city, which was supposed to be a prototype for the city of God, lays in ruins. And it seems like all hope has been lost. And Ezekiel begins to get this vision that God is going to work in humanity and actually remove the sinful heart that produces all of the chaos and destruction out in the world and give them a new heart. And this new heart is actually going to enable them to live as children of God because the mechanism of sin no longer has a hold over them. And he doesn't stop there. He says, there's going to be a new temple where Solomon's temple was burned down and destroyed. He gets a vision of this new place of worship where God's presence would dwell among his people. And then it gets better. We get to Ezekiel 47 and he gets this vision of what God's presence will look like when it's intersecting with our reality. And this is what he sees. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple face east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. If this sounds confusing, it, it is confusing. He's, he's seeing a vision and in his best way possible, he's trying to describe it with, 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 with words that are a little bit out of context because we're in this Western culture. But essentially what's happening is that Ezekiel sees the temple of God facing a certain direction and out of this temple began to flow a small trickle of water. Now, Ian Duguide, an Old Testament professor, points out that this river begins in the south side of the temple. And this is where a a large basin of water called the Molten Sea would have been located. It's probably the size of an above ground pool. And it was there for ceremonial priest rituals and sacrifices, but it represented a a little bit more than that. It sort of represented the, the power of the sea. And in the ancient Near East context, the sea was sort of viewed as the chief enemy of God. This power and force that was completely uncontrollable and unpredictable. And in many ancient Near East, Near East mythology, uh, the idea was that whoever could conquer the sea was truly God. Now God goes one step up and says, I created the sea. I'm the Lord of the sea. Uh, in fact, the psalmist says that, that, that the Lord is mighty above the sea. And so it's this idea that from these forces of chaos and destruction and powerlessness and despair is flowing God's presence, making all things new and reversing the effects of the fall. That what once produced destruction is now being used by God to bring life and life abundantly. The idea that that out of darkness, out of chaos, out of destruction can flow water, one that's not disruptive, one that's not drowning you in misery, but one that heals and transforms everything. Verse 2, then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. Remember that. And going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured 1,000 cubits. And he led me through the water. And all of a sudden, the water that was just once a trickle has become ankle deep. He measured another 1,000. He's leading me through the water in this vision. And now all of a sudden, the water is knee deep. He measured another 1,000, and it was waist deep. He measured another 1,000, and now Ezekiel is categorizing it as a river. One that cannot be passed through, for his water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that cannot be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me to the bank of the river. Can you imagine this with me? Small trickle of water flowing from uh, the tap of your sink. And then all of a sudden, it builds up out of nowhere into an ankle-deep stream, then a knee-deep stream, then waist-deep, and then finally it is a river that cannot be passed through, a river that represents, in this text, God's presence. And this river that started with a small trickle of water is now a full-force river, and notice where it's flowing. It's flowing eastward. And the reason why this is significant is because commentators have pointed out that in the book of Genesis, movement toward the east always appears in the context of rebellion and sin. It is flowing toward the direction that Adam and Eve walked in when they were expelled from the garden. It is flowing towards the direction that Cain, after he murdered Abel in Genesis 4, is walking towards. The people that built the Tower of Babel to create a structure for themselves and completely neglect the way of God migrated from the east. And movement towards the East in the Old Testament always represents our sinful condition of rebellion, destruction, disorder, brokenness, and the pursuits of building our own kingdom. It represents the direction that you and I choose to go when we choose to be the God of our own lives and, and create a type of world for ourselves that isn't God glorifying, but just self centered. But remember what's happening in this vision that Ezekiel's getting there's a great reversal. The water that's flowing toward the east uh, is not creating further brokenness in the world. Rather, it is creating life and not destroying it. Water is moving towards a direction where things go to die and is creating life and life abundantly. We continue reading, and it says this. I went back, I saw on the bank of the river, very many trees on one side and on the other. He said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the waters flow into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where this river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Inglam. it will be a place for the spreading of nets. It, it, its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks of both sides of the river, there will be all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. This is a good garden. They will bear fresh fruit in every month because the water that flows, uh, the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Notice verse nine, everything will live where the river of God's presence flows. Friends, I wanna remind you that there is a, a river of God's presence that's bringing life to, uh, to areas of your life that are marked by death. Parts of your mind, parts of your body, parts of your reality that you live in that you think are inhospitable for life, that you've just closed off because you think nothing can live there. So what's the point of sharing it and bringing other people into it through prayer? God is bringing his presence into those things and causing life to emerge and life abundantly. Everywhere the river of God's presence flows, things will live. I believe this. I, I, I so radically believe this. I walk through the square and I say, the river of God's presence is flowing through me and I'm just waiting for people to get wet. In God's presence. I believe that Jesus says that streams of living water will flow out out of us and flow through us and that God's presence in us and around us will get on people and circumstances and situations around us and cause things that seem like are dead and fruitless and lifeless to come alive with fresh fruit that is healing. Not just momentary, every month, every day. A river of transformation. And wherever this river flows, it, it transforms. It transforms the region. It, it flows east and it empties into the Dead Sea. We've said this before. The river transforms the Dead Sea. The one place that is not hospitable for life. Nothing is growing there. Nothing is living there. All of a sudden is touched by God's presence. And it's swarming with fruit and creatures and trees hospitable for life. Ezekiel sees in this vision God's presence flowing into all of creation, causing things to come alive, heaven reuniting with earth, great trees in a land that was once barren, swarming creatures where there was once stagnant water, fruit that is good for healing. We see that it transforms the region and it transforms the people. He's giving us a picture of a world that's so abundant with resources in life that the fishermen arrive and there's a great harvest and feast for them. And you know what? We think about this and we read this and we see this and it may mean something to you. It may not mean something to some of us, but for the people hearing this and reading this and experiencing it as they're shackled in chains feeling the effects of hunger, not knowing how they're going to feed their children far removed from, a home, from their homeland and feeling the effects of solitary and loneliness. It meant something for them. Because remember the children of Israel are in Babylon oppressed by an enemy and yet God is speaking to them in a circumstance that doesn't feel like heaven on earth, that heaven is coming to earth despite the circumstance and is bridging the gap. That God's presence is no longer going to be dictated by uh, people or opportunities or worship service that are hospitable to his presence. He's just going to dwell among us despite how we feel or what we do or what we don't do. This meant something for the children of Israel who are living under Babylonian oppression, who are experiencing pain. There is river of God's presence coming that transforms everything. And I wanna remind you this morning that this is a prophetic vision for you and I. Uh, that, that for our personal lives and every single aspect of our lives, God's presence can intersect with it and transform everything. The, the lifeless parts of our world and the lifeless parts of our heart can come alive with hope, can come alive with healing, can come alive with provision, can come alive with fresh passion and new life. Do God goes on to say that God's transforming power flows from the temple into the lives of sinners, healing them and restoring them to their place in the covenant community. God's flowing power, God's presence, God's healing flows from God himself into the lives of people who've been broken by sin. Wherever this river flows, it transforms. It transforms ordinary hurting people into powerfully healed saints because the river of God's presence powerfully heals and restores it transforms homes that have been riddled with hopelessness and abuse and loneliness into places of defiant hope and defiant joy because the river of God's presence is flowing through these places and drowning out despair and flooding it with grace and love. It brings the lost home as people who are far from God are carried away in God's presence back into union with Him. It breaks the chains of the enslaved. Brings transformation from the inside out. And for what purpose? To reunite heaven and earth. Hear these words from missiologist Christopher Wright. "For, For the exiles... This river spoke of the reversal of the curse, death and barrenness of exile through the return to the land as a people restored to God's blessing and favor. Beyond that, it spoke to the true source of all life and healing, the presence of the living God in his sanctuary. For those who believe in the Messiah, King Jesus, the river of living water that Jesus speaks about is the continued welling up of the spirit of God, which brings life and blessing to the believer here and now and flows out to others. We need to remember that all renewal in the church or in the world flows by God's grace and from God's presence, and it is not something we generate or control. And ultimately, the river of life that we see in Ezekiel and in the last chapter of Revelation anticipates the fullness of the new creation in which God will have lifted the curse from the earth forever and will dwell in life-giving abundance with his redeemed people gathered from all the nations. That's where we're moving towards. And I love what he says about God's presence flowing and moving in our lives. It's not something we generate and it's not something we control. Uh, We don't force or muster up God's presence at work in our lives. We don't well behave our way into God doing good miracles in our life. How do we experience the flow of God's presence in our life? What we said last week, we live a God-centered life and let him take it from there. We put God at the center of every area and every aspect of our life and live in constant awareness of God's centrality in every area, in every aspect of our life. And remember that his promise is true, that when we center our lives around him, his presence begins to flow in us and through us and into every area of our life. And the parts where we feel drought, the part where it feels dry, is just a gracious, gracious invitation to recenter your life on him. Consider this morning where you feel dry. Consider this morning where you feel disconnected and distant. Could it be that the Holy Spirit is inviting you to center God in a new place or maybe an old place in your life? It's not something we generate. It's not something we control. And with that in mind, let's visit our final scene, the sea. Matthew 14, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, why does this matter? And what does this have to do with mission? Now, remember, we said mission is reuniting heaven and earth. And God, when He is on mission, is no longer necessarily separating the holy from the unholy. Rather, He's going into the unholy and making it holy through His presence. And so what is God doing? He's drawing near to the disqualified. He's drawing near to broken people like you and I, who we would have said uh, are are not welcome into the temple in presence of God. And he's bridging the gap. And in this moment, it's incredibly significant because when Jesus approaches these two fishermen uh, at the Sea of Galilee, he's coming out of the wilderness the land that represented curse and death. And he comes out victorious and he is continuing his mission of reuniting heaven and earth. And how is he going to fulfill this mission? By calling ordinary fishermen to himself. It's no coincidence that that Ezekiel would say, Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Engelium, which represents this whole span of the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. They will spread their nets as Jesus has called them to be, fisher for men all over the nations, the great sea. Fishermen who will work from the river of transformation because they've been transformed by God's presence to bring transformation and healing all over the world. And the place... The sea, remember that we we said, represents sort of these forces of chaos. The place that seems turbulent and ordinary is the place where God extends his invitation to join his mission. You see, mission is joining God in what he is already doing. Mission is joining God in what he is already doing. God is already moving, advancing his kingdom by force, reuniting heaven and earth. Whether we jump in or not, it is happening, and he is graciously extending us the invitation to jump in and join him. And the question is, how do you join God's mission? By responding to an ancient invitation. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 4, 19, he said to them, follow me, center your life around me, temple-centered, God-centered, to be Christ-centered, center your life around me, and I will make you fishers of men. And remember what we said earlier, that the flow of God's transforming presence at work in our lives is not something we fabricate. It's something that God does in us. And Jesus says, I will make you, I will form you. I will recreate you. The parts that have been broken and disrupted and tainted by sin, I've come to restore and recreate that you may be filled and have life and life abundantly. The river of God's presence flows from a God-centered life who has drawn near enough to graciously invite you where you are right now, maybe in a place that doesn't feel like heaven on earth so that you can experience heaven on earth with him as you center your life around him. The river of God's presence flowing from a God-centered life and us responding to his ancient invitation to submit to him, to follow him, to make him center and allowing him to carve out the work of making us what he's calling us to be, fishers of men, people who would join in his mission of reuniting heaven and earth and being temples of his presence and spirit that flow out into every area and aspect of our life yielding our lives to King Jesus, allowing living water to bubble up and eventually spring forth into the world around you. What does mission look like? Reuniting heaven and earth. How do we join in? By responding to this ancient invitation all over again. Follow me and Jesus will make you a fisher of men. Let's pray.